number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where I get the pleasure of having conversations with incredible individuals who have done incredible things, and you get to sit back and let our conversation take you through the own madness of your own mind and allow you to come out of it at the end thinking differently, hopefully feeling motivated and feeling more positive, especially in the world we're living into, living in today. So to bring in the guest that I have on the show today, we're very, very lucky, folks. We've got somebody who we probably would never get if it wasn't for a COVID crisis. <laughs> we have Candy Palmiter. She is a recovered lawyer turned feminist comic. She is an actor, writer, columnist, international speaker, activist, comedian, and multiple award-winning TV and radio personality, and has executive produced three films on Mi'kmaq culture. As well, Candy is the creator and star of her own national multiple award-winning TV series, The Candy Show. And I could go on. She's done so much more than that, but she's an all-around fabulous lady. Candy, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, hey. What's cooking, good-looking? <laughs> oh, I have not heard that since maybe the age of 13. Listen, I'm an extrovert that has been in quarantine for three weeks. You're lucky I'm not crawling right through this computer <laughs> to give you a big hug. Isn't it the weirdest thing? I mean, I, you know, obviously I'm an extrovert as well. And have you been hearing this? Because, uh, folks, if you are listening to this right now, we are taping this right in the, I don't even, I should, I was going to say the middle of the COVID crisis, but we're probably on the first 5% of it. We're about a month in. And, um, Two extroverts like uh, ourselves are going a bit crazy. I, I keep getting friends saying to me, how are you doing? Are you okay? Yeah. Are you getting that too because of the fact that we just need people all the time? Yeah, absolutely. My wife is in her heaven because she's an introvert. Although I think being trapped with me during this time is probably not the best thing for her. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's uh, I miss people and I really miss audiences. I, I always knew that I loved and needed my audiences, I didn't realize how badly I need them. Right. And what do you mean when you say that? What do you need specifically? There is a, there is a, I guess I always call it the juice. Like I love mm. radio and I, and when I do radio, I feel very intimate. I feel like I'm in someone's ear, Right. but, but nothing for me compares to a live audience because when I'm doing radio, I don't get the juice. And that's how I refer to it is the juice. Right. It's, it's the high. It's that feeling when you push out love or you push out a vibe and 2,000 people push that vibe back on you. Mm -hmm. That is like I can ride that for a month. Like I can do one gig and ride. But when there is no gigs on the horizon and you have been a month without that juice, I feel like uh, literally a piece of fruit drying up on the vine. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. And I, I know a lot of people, when they hear you speak that way, they'll make the mistake of thinking that it's an ego thing for us performers, that we, we it's, just, it's just filling our ego to have people clap for us and give us standing ovations. But it really is a human exchange of energy. And when the audience is there, um, it could it doesn't even have to be a standing ovation. It could just be some person in the front row who just has a little chuckle at something you say or somebody who leans forward because they're really kind of being absorbed by what it is that that you're offering in that moment. And and without that, it's like it almost feels like it's it a, a, one of our limbs has been taken off. Yeah, I mean, I would for people who don't do what we do, um, I would I would say this and get the kids out of the room if you don't want to hear me talk about sex. But um, <laughs> you know, masturbation is fun. Everybody can enjoy masturbation, but it does not stand up to making love with someone else. You know, so yes. so you know anybody who's ever had sex, you know how much more awesome it is when there is someone in the room with you when you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. And so uh, feel how you get lit up, that feel that you get, well, it is very similar to that, except it is from a whole bunch of people. And I agree with you. It's, it's, not, it's not the applause. It's like, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. So there are times when I'm telling a sad story 
and I look out and I can see there are 2,000 people who do not usually cry in public mm-hmm. having a moment. And I sink down into that moment and I, and I never feel more alive or more connected to the human experience than I do in those moments. So when you take that away, it really takes the shine off my living experience. You know, it's for, well, two things you make me think of. First of all, I can't believe it took us that long to get to masturbation. And <laughs> thank God we got there sooner than expected. Um, but secondly, what do you find yourself now thinking, knowing that it's likely you're not going to be on stage or you and I are not going to be on stage for what could be, who knows, a year, maybe even longer? Mm-hmm. Um are you are you pivoting? Are you now thinking, okay, well, I'm going to do what so many other people are doing, which is to go online? Or are you thinking that you're going to be kind of losing a piece of yourself if you do? Well, I I am lucky. I guess when, when all this hit, I was at the hair salon on a, on a Thursday morning, and I was saying, oh, this isn't going to affect me. You know, most of my gigs are in Canada. It, you know, I'll, I'll still make a good living be able to, being able to just travel in Canada. Everything's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my manager texted me as I was sitting in the chair saying, uh, oh, I just booked you another gig uh, before the end of March. I was like, oh, great. See, everything's fine. I left the hair salon. I went to the studio because I am uh, narrating a television series called Skindigenous. We're in season three. Okay. okay. And I went to the studio to narrate an episode. And the engineer who owns the studio said to me, so if this gets, you know, much more serious, this is going to hurt you and I. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, it looks like, you know, things might start canceling. I said, no, you're out of your mind. They won't cancel in Canada. Mm-hmm. Literally, I left the studio and got home. And my wife, who's also my manager, her face is like blank. I said, what's wrong? She said, uh, you're supposed to fly to Saskatoon in two days. They're pulling out. I said, what? And then within 24 hours... $30,000 worth of work disappeared in 24 hours. Wow. So my first feeling was, oh my God, I'm going to go broke. Oh my God, how am I going to make my living? I live in Toronto where I pay ridiculous rent. What's going to happen? And then after two or three days, I got past that and I got into, oh my God, I'm 51 years old with asthma. What if I die? So at, <laughs> so at this point, like a win for me is this is over and I'm still alive. That's like, that's a, that's a number one. <laughs> On top of that, I, I am lucky. I'm in the middle of a book deal with HarperCollins Canada. So when I finish uh, this round of edits, I'll get a drawdown. So in terms of help, keeping me from being homeless, right. that's going to help. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I have not yet contemplated the notion of a year. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm hoping, you know, I was supposed to host this big live uh, television broadcast in June. It happens every year called um, Indigenous Day Live on APTN. They have rescheduled that to August. I've got all my fingers and toes crossed. That is going to happen in August. If it doesn't, I am going to have to pivot in some way. I mean, I do have a YouTube channel, but it's a very informal. I just do vlogs. It's kind of like behind the scenes candy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do have, uh, I had recorded last year 12 interviews for a podcast. And I have just been on the road constantly. So they're still just sitting in the can. They haven't even been edited. So I'm thinking maybe in the next week or two, I should try to get my, try to figure out my, my equipment well enough to edit those and maybe just put them out to have some kind of connection with my audience. Well, yeah, this is what it comes down to now. I I know that I went through personally kind of stages. So I was similar to you. The the first stage was, well, okay, you know what? Mm -hmm. Uh, Things will get postponed. And this would be my conversation with my partner. And I'd be saying things like, I would imagine that by around June, July, this will will kind of you know we'll be we'll get through it and then we can start getting back on stage. And then I, and I'd come back a couple of days later after going for a walk and I'd say, okay, so I'm thinking it's probably we're looking more like at the fall. We're looking at the fall, but uh, fall's okay. You know what? We'll have a great summer and we'll kind of you know <laughs> reposition some things. Next thing I know, a couple of days later, it just keeps getting longer and longer. And I kept saying to um, my partner, I was like, you know, I kind of wonder if like what the legal liabilities would be for an organization to bring groups together again uh, when there isn't a vaccine yet. I mean, if let's say Bell Canada decides to have a sales conference where let's say we flatten the curve so much we hardly see it anymore, but it is still out there. And are they going to bring 500 um, salespeople from across the country together in Toronto for a meeting uh, only 
to have, let's say, one person get it and then die, well, what are the legal liability or ramifications of that? I mean, does the, does the family come back and say, you know, the vaccine wasn't out yet, you shouldn't have had a meeting, my partner has died, whatever. You know what I mean? That's, this, these are the things that are now crossing my mind. Like, I, I, I'm not a doomsday guy. I'm usually quite optimistic, but it started making me think, oh, my God. And then I was watching this um, video with uh, one of our colleagues and probably one of the most sought-out professional speakers in the corporate market in the world, Simon Sinek. And he was having a meeting with his team, one of his like group huddles in the morning. And he was saying in his own meeting, he's like, you know, I, he goes, even I have to reinvent myself because I have to think my, as a speaker, I kind of feel like that day when I would get on stage and do speeches, he goes, I feel like that that ship has sailed. And I was like, oh yeah. no, oh no, Simon Sinek. I'm, wor- <laughs> I'm really worried about that too. Like I did a podcast last week with, um, slow coaster really well-known east coast band Mm -hmm. and um we were we were having like you know we were kind of surmising the same thing when it's over will you know yes a will bell hold the conference but also will 500 salespeople come right yeah that might be like you know what i'm waiting i am what i am hoping is you remember after sars there were all kinds of um incentives to get people to feel safe to come to Toronto again. Oh yeah. My, my sister lived in Tomogamy at the time and I remember I was living on the East Coast and I remember her calling me saying, Oh my goodness, I'm I'm getting a hotel dinner in the Lion King for like seventy nine dollars. Right. And there were all of these like incentives. So mm-hmm. I am hoping that there will be those kinds of incentives. But here's what I'm wondering about. So after I speak, there is always a lot of hugging and kissing. Mm. will that happen you know let's get back and everything goes back to yes we get gigs again will people feel comfortable and will i feel comfortable to open myself up to let a whole line full of people hug me and kiss me that's a great point you know my introverted wife that always freaked her out anyway because sometimes people will kiss me on the mouth and she's like okay what we can tell people (laughs) say no i said honey it's, it's they're just having a moment it's it's you got to understand the moment they're in. They just, they're being freed up. They think it's got something to do with me. It really doesn't. It's its about a moment they're having, but they feel like somehow touching me is, is going to uh, deepen that moment for them, and I'm not going to ruin that for them. But now I feel a little bit weird about it. You know, it's funny because, um, once again, talking to my partner, and she said, uh, as of right now, uh, public gatherings in Toronto have been uh, postponed until June 30th, as you probably know. And June 30th happens to be my birthday. And so she said, oh, my God, like, won't it be amazing on your birthday? Uh, the, 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 if the bars and restaurants open up, we can have a great big party and everyone's going to be – she was, can you just imagine? It's going to be like New Year's Eve in the bars. And I said, I don't know if it will be. I actually – I think people are going to be worried. Like, I think people are going to be very slow – to ease back in. I mean, the younger crowd, the millennial crowd, like, you know, we were all a bit dumb back then. I, when, I, when I was in my 20s, I probably would have been like, yeah, let's do it. But I think that the majority of people are being like, you know what? I think I'll let everyone else test the market for a few months and then I'll go test it myself. So yeah, like same thing with hugging and kissing. Like I'm the same way at the end of my presentations, lots of handshaking, lots of hugging. Um, I've yet to have someone kiss me on the lips at the end of a show, but uh, maybe... It's uh, it's a goal that I should set for myself in the future, but yeah, it's um, definitely something that I hadn't even considered about would I be open to that? And oh man, it's just what, what do you what do you most besides not being on stage? Um, what, what what part of this bothers you the most when you when you know that we're, we're moving into a new world? What is it about that new world that you you least want to see? Um, you know, I feel like with the dawn, I'm 51, so I've I've come through. Like I remember computers coming into the workplace. I I started work at Dalhousie University in the HR department, and I think I worked there for a year when computers arrived. Right. So I've come through. You know, I remember dial tone, like rotary dial telephones. So as I have proceeded through my 51 years, I feel that the more ways we have to connect electronically, the less connected that we have become. Yeah. And yeah. when I moved from the East Coast to Toronto, that was a real culture shock in terms of on the East Coast, you know, if you take a city like Halifax, where I lived for 30 years, 
Halifax is small enough. It has, first of all, has more bars per capita than any other city in the country. Mm-hmm. And on Friday after work, everybody goes to a pub for a drink and to see their friends. Right. And you might just have one and then, you know, head home, pick up the kids and head home. But on Friday after work, it you just go to a bar and you are going to see people you know. And here in Toronto, I find it, I, I know lots of people. I'll call somebody and say, hey, I've got a couple of hours. Oh, where are you? I'm in Midtown. Oh, I'm downtown. And I only have an hour and a half. And yeah, by the time we got somewhere we both could get to, it'd be time to start back. So I feel like we don't, we're not as connected. And I am worried that after this, when people are getting so used to, oh, we're having birthday parties on Zoom and we're we're having classes on Zoom and we're, I'm really worried that people are going to continue that, that we're going to become even more disconnected. And if that happens, I fear that depression and anxiety is going to heighten because introvert or extrovert, we need one another. We need, we need connection. No question. And you know, it's funny that you, you have just voiced, I would say probably the exact same uh, biggest concern that I have. Uh, I was always the, the optimist in me uh, as I would watch our world transverse into a, into a world where we were continuously texting each other uh, in conversation or instant messaging each other or sending direct messages through Instagram and all these different forms of communication that don't uh, involve face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact. And I was always like, well, you know, it's, these new platforms are just be still coming in and people still, for the most part, they still do have conversations with each other. But I've always been worried that we are moving down that slippery slope. But I had had hope. I, I always felt myself thinking, I kind of feel like with new statistics that are coming out about how um, our, our social network influences our health and our mental health and uh, our sleep and all the important things of life, maybe people are going to kind of, a bit of have a bit of a wake-up call and they might start moving away from it. But yes, all of a sudden, now, where we are being forced to move into this digital uh, form of communication only... Um, well, your life depends on it. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah totally, literally... That has been where I um, echo your concern and 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 really do get fearful of the fact that people might just be like, you know what, I just I just kind of got used to it, and I'm like, why don't like is anybody cool like maybe I, I just I'm just gonna have my birthday on Zoom. Is everyone like down for that? And and people start being like, you know what, yeah, like let's do that because. I'm actually pretty busy this week and I'd love to just jump on the call for half an hour and it just makes it so that I don't actually have to go up and buy a present. I don't have to go to a bar. And yeah, I, I agree. I mean, cause I, I don't know. I mean, I know that we, I know that we can't go back to the lives that we once had. Um, but I just hope that we just don't go so far into this rabbit hole that we just can't get out of it. Yeah. We have, we have to keep focused on the fact that as human beings, we need connection with one another we need to have that human to human contact. Even, you know, when I look at the technology, so I, there's a couple of people I text with on a regular basis. And one of them is a person my age who I've been friends with since high school. Mm-hmm. And he and I text, we text in full sentences. Like we're having, it's almost like we're pen pals, except it's instant, right? Like it's, go, it's going back and forth, but we're writing full sentences, full complete thoughts. Then my great niece will text me and there are literally like 15 letters on my, and I have to figure out what they mean because she does not type a single full word. And I just think, Oh my goodness, you're not even getting the full, you know, obviously you and I are in the business of words and, and, and making people feel something with our words. And I'm thinking if you're not even typing a full word, you're not even getting your full, the full feeling across in a text. That's true. You know, I read this thing recently that broke my heart where there was this father who took a 16 year old down to the passport office and he was getting his passport for the very first time. It was a big day. He was really excited. And so he gets up there. He's done all the work. And now the person behind the counter passes him his passport. And they said, okay, this is great. Just one last thing. Can you just sign your name here on the passport in front of me? And the kid didn't know how to sign his name. 
And the father was confused, didn't even know this was actually happened. This had happened. And it was a very awkward, weird moment. And I can't remember where I had read this, but uh, the fact that a 16-year-old couldn't even, you know, uh, mm. understand cursive uh, writing, it's just like, oh, my God. Like, I don't I, – I, I'm all for – uh, the world changing, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of both of us when I say, "Hey, yeah, like the younger generation is going to have their own lingo, of course, and they're going to have their own way of texting. That's fine, but if it gets to the point where we're no longer able to communicate properly, or to empathize, or to be able to articulate ourselves in how we truly feel about something, um, I fear that you're right that we're going to see a mental health crisis." that has been unprecedented. In fact, I don't know. Do you think that maybe we're already seeing that mental health crisis before the whole COVID thing happened? Yeah, I do. Because I, when I look at the number of young people, so I'm I'm the youngest of seven. So I have a lot of nieces and nephews and a lot of great nieces and nephews. My nieces and nephews are within 10 years of my age, a couple of them older than me. <laughs> my great nieces and nephews are, they run from about, I guess, 10 years old up to almost 16 years old. And the number of issues I see in that in that age bracket in terms of anxiety, uh, attention issues, um, social issues, being able to read emotional signals from other people issues, it, it's astounding. And I think a big part of that is because if you are not face-to-face -face with people, as a young child, how do you learn those signals? Like, how do you figure that stuff out? Right. So, yeah, I think we were already there on some level. And now with this, I think people are really feeling the crunch. What I'm hoping, though, and this is the – because I am an optimist always. And I hope that this forced time alone is going to make people so desperate for connection that I hope when this is over that people do come just exploding – I mean, wear your mask and gloves if you need to, but come out. Right. Yeah. Out. I, I've been thinking the same thing. I'm just, I hope that people, it's that, you know, classic uh, Rolling Stones song, right? You don't know what you've got until it's gone. Yeah. Um, and I think, I'm hoping that, that, uh, first of all, I'm hoping it was the Rolling Stones that actually sang that. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I'm hoping that it's, this is what happens because it is such a big deal. And I, I find it interesting about how many problems we have in society and that, society doesn't actually collectively step back and go, hey, you know what? We should probably look at that. Like, here's a great example. I was reading a book recently. Now, I've, I've, been a, uh, I've always been a drinker, grew up in a, in a family where my parents are Europeans and, and drank at the dinner table. And so I started thinking, okay, am I drinking too much? Like, it's, it's not that great for my health. And so I read this book while I was away recently. And um, it's about the unconscious and, and how the unconscious sees alcohol as uh, satisfying these desires that it can't satisfy. So the belief that maybe I'm more attractive if I'm drinking alcohol or I'm more fun or I'm funnier or whatever the belief system might be. And consciously, those things never felt real to me, but it, it did make allow me to kind of look at alcohol from, through a new lens. And it hasn't stopped me from drinking alcohol, but it definitely has caused me to drink less. And however, the point that this woman makes in the article, or sorry, in the, in the book that I think is fascinating, she's like, you know, alcohol is one of the biggest killers in North America. And all of the different health effects that alcohol has on our body um, is something that's you know, not always spoken about. And so she said, used the example. She said, uh, I would never let any of my friends take cocaine in front of my children. She says, but I have no problem with my friends drinking a glass of wine in front of my children. And she says, alcohol, or sorry, uh, cocaine kills 15 people a day in the United States. And alcohol kills 861 people every day in the United States. And so we all, we, in fact, we don't, we don't actually just um, uh, not say that alcohol is bad. We go the exact opposite way. We, we say alcohol is amazing. We put it in all of our movies. We put it into commercials. We put it, we attach it to sporting events and, and cultural events. Um, we, it's part of our lingo where we say to our friends, myself included, God, I really need a drink. And and yet she made me realize like how this is uh, this is actually a uh, a health crisis that we need to take a look at and my, I keep saying myself included, so going full circle back to um, technology and in the in the way that we communicate to each other on a digital platform, um, I think it kind of falls in line with the same thing with alcohol is that 
I don't think there, there must just not be enough research out yet where we can now pinpoint like, hey, you know what? Your social distancing that you were doing well before COVID-19 and, and, and only using your digital platforms as a way of communicating with each other. Here, we, we are now in a position where we can, research has shown that here are the ill effects it's having on your life. It's beginning to come out. You know, I know that they recently said that they can now better predict how long you'll live based on the strength of your your social connections mm-hmm. uh, uh, than they can by knowing if you smoke cigarettes, uh, what kind of food you eat, and how much you exercise. So your social connections are actually a better indicator to how healthy you'll be. So it's beginning to come out, but I think it's it's um it's a pandemic within a pandemic that that is not really being looked at, and and it scares me. The question is, would like would you be able to stop them anyway, right? So that's mm-hmm. uh, like because I think most of us know on some level how how detrimental alcohol is to our health, not even just our health, but if you look at our egos. Um, and you look at some of the most well-preserved people, I'm thinking of Jennifer Lopez, I'm thinking of Tina Turner, they all share the same thing, right? We've never, we don't use drugs and alcohol. Like none of us ever, for Jennifer, she doesn't even drink coffee. So uh, it's funny that you brought the alcohol thing up because I watched a, um, at the end of last year, I watched this thing with Chris Farley. And uh, for people who don't know me, I'm, a, I'm obese, I'm a very big woman. And it was a documentary about Chris Farley and his drug problem. And one of his comedian friends, the guy that stars in the movie, uh, in the series, Better Call Saul, said to him at the time, Chris, you can be fat or you can be a drug addict. You can't be both, man. Your body's not going not gonna to withstand it. Right. So I have, I, you know, I too, I love a drink. I, a dry gin martini is my thing. I have uh, osteoarthritis. I have an, uh, an artificial hip and I'm overdue for a second one. A couple of martinis will take the edge off that pain. So like an idiot, on January 1st, 2020, I made a promise to myself, and I'm part of my personal development is I think you really have to keep promises to yourself. I decided that instead of doing dry January in 2020, I was going to do dry 2020. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then what happens? A pandemic. <laughs> so I have not had a drink since January 1st. And the day that everything canceled, I thought I would give my right arm for a try <laughs> right now. But I am going to keep this promise to myself. I am not going to let this pandemic make me break a promise to myself. So, so what? Hope- what about that? Is by the way, like kudos to you. I mean, it's, it, that's a hard enough thing to do without a pandemic. And I, I, I completely noticed that I was drinking more dr- during the pandemic. I was giving myself excuses all the time of, of why I deserved a glass of wine. Um, what has it been like for you to go through this? Um, well, what's funny is my skin looks great. I, I definitely notice a difference in my skin. Right, um, right. It also, I think it, uh, in some ways you think you get a better sleep when you've had a couple, but it, it's not really restful sleep. But I do realize now, having gone through you know three weeks of the pandemic, I think I did rely a little bit too much on having a drink to chill me out. Yeah. So you know because that would generally, if I was really stressed, I was you know what I'm just going to have a martini, and even just the ceremony of making the martini starts to starts to relax you, and then you drink a martini or two and you chilled out. Well, that's not really the greatest way to get chilled out. So I thought, what did I do before? You know, when I was young, well, when I was young, I was an athlete. So I thought, okay, I can't do any like the heavy athletics I used to do. I mean, I walk on a cane, I, I can barely stand. So I thought one day I was home alone. I thought, you know, I remember in my 20s when I couldn't afford to go to a gym. I used to do this Cindy Crawford workout every day at home. I had a tape. So I looked it up on the internet and I thought this, this will be the solution. I turned it on. I got my sneakers on. I got my cutest little workout outfit. I got about three minutes in, and I had to switch over to sweat into the oldies three with Richard Simmons. <laughs> I realized, okay, you might you might want to rely on physical activity for your for your stress, but you're gonna have to start with sweat into the oldies because <laughs> you are definitely out of shape. <laughs> you so know what? I, it's so funny. I feel the same way almost every day when I have to chase my kids. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, if nothing else comes out of this, I, it's been a wake-up call for the physical condition I'm in. And it's giving me both time 
and uh, and a little bit of inspiration to do something about that. So good for you. I mean, that's a big thing. I, you know, I'm going to do a plug now. Actually, I wasn't going to, but of this book, it's called The Naked Mind. And uh, I cannot be- remember the name of the author, but I think you should maybe consider getting it for yourself because it will be it'll it'll take the edge off of the challenge of not having alcohol uh, when it used to be such a big part of your life uh, during this pandemic. And and I feel like such a hypocrite telling you this because I, I know I'm probably later on today going to have a beer. Yeah. But um, but I definitely think that you you would really benefit uh, going through this particular period. So so let me ask you, though, you're, you're a comic and you're an entertainer and you're a speaker and you're so many other things. Um, was it difficult in the beginning of the year, because we're now having this conversation in April, uh, to not have a drink because you were surrounded by all those people who we all know comics, most comics drink too much and do too many drugs, and and uh, most entertainers definitely drink. Was it difficult to be around your peers? Not really that part, because for me, I do most of my comedy in corporate settings. I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not out at comedy bars, so I'm not around a lot of other comics. Usually, I'm the only comic I'm in. I do my bit and I'm out. I, from the very beginning of my career, decided I was never going to be an after-party person. Um, so no matter what my gig is, I never socialize afterwards. I go back to my hotel. But in the hotel, I usually will make myself a martini in my room. So the first couple of trips of 2020, I really struggled. Like I was in, in the hotel room. And, and I think on some level, it's because you're bored and you're alone and it just, it's like, this is the thing I do. I'll, I'll make myself a drink. I'll open a good book or watch a good movie and then go to sleep and get on my flight to get to the next place. People think this kind of career is, is glamorous, but in reality you spend most of your time alone in hotels and on airplanes and in airports. And you do all that for the juice of that one hour that you get to be on stage. <laughs> so for the first couple of trips, it was a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. And then it it was then it was okay. Then I was like, you know what, this is this is not a big deal. When I was in my twenties, I couldn't afford to drink a martini, so I'm just gonna pretend that I'm too broke to have a martini and, and let it go and think of something else to do that's gonna make me relax so well it'll become the new norm for you i would imagine and um, if it hasn't already in a matter of time and that's uh you know i guess you'll 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 be you'll be the one that all of us other entertainers are going to start following suit on soon so uh everyone's just going to want your skin the one thing i have to avoid though like what i would normally do in this time oh my goodness i'm stuck at home um i am going to rewatch for the 10th time the sopranos which to me is the best television that was ever made in the history of the world Okay. The problem is, when I watch The Sopranos, I have to eat pasta and drink wine. That's like right, of course, getting around it. So I cannot watch The Sopranos right now because if I do, I'm going to want a glass of wine. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so speaking of. Um you know, good uh, television. And obviously that's a career that you are in and, and this one that uh, you've been in, you've been on stage and you've been on the radio and all other kinds of media. Um, I know that those listening to me introduce you at the beginning of this podcast, they're going to hear the fact that you were a lawyer to start off with and yeah. to move into this. I'm sure they're all going to kick me in the ass if I don't ask you, you know, how does a person go to school, and I know, I believe you were like the valedictorian of your class out there in Dalhousie. Uh, How did you go from that and not just climb the ranks and make a half a million dollars a year as some big corporate lawyer? Uh, How does a person transition into doing what you do today? Well, let me tell you, when you say, you know, are you pivoting? My biggest fear is I don't want to have to pivot back to that. Right, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's a good, it's it's definitely a good uh, second choice, obviously. It's a it's better than the second choice that a lot of people would have at this point in their life. But I became a lawyer because I thought I could give voice to, to the voiceless. I was 26 working at Dahazi University in Human Resources. I had kind of tossed around the idea of law school for a number of years. My boss at the time now has become my best and longest friend. Um, she kept saying to me, you got to go. You got to apply. You got to apply. So I applied. I went. When I got to law school, it's like I drank the Kool-Aid. You know, everybody's pushing for that corporate job, which is not giving voice to the voiceless. 
there was a very bad statistic in Nova Scotia. No Mi'kmaq people had ever been hired back in the history of Nova Scotia, a private firm. I felt I really strongly that I wanted to be the first to get through that door. I was, I was, I was very proud of that. And then all of a sudden I woke up at 32 years old and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm a corporate lawyer. <laughs> How did this happen? This fits me like a bad suit. And that is not disrespect to, you know, for some people it's their thing. Like if it, if it feeds your soul, if it gets you off, then do it. But if it doesn't, don't let other people's notions of success hold you somewhere where you don't feel successful. Successful to me is I wake up 99 days out of 100 feeling quite happy and quite content with my life. There's a lot of love in my life. And by love, I mean I give out a lot of love because you cannot control people loving you, but you can control how much love you give. And I try to give all the love I can. And as a lawyer, I was... I was withering on the vine. I could feel myself getting smaller and smaller, and I was losing sight of this. My goal in life is I pictured a long time ago the woman that I want to be, and if it all works out, someday, I hope maybe 40 years from now, I'm going to wake up, my bank account's going to hit zero because I don't want to leave money for anybody, um, and I am going to say I am here. I have finally become her, and then I will die and head on to where we go next or become dust either way. To me, that's my goal in this life. And when I was a lawyer, I was getting, she was so far away from me, the person I was trying to be, I couldn't even see her anymore. And so I decided, you know, I don't care what other people think success is. People think this is it. I'm in a big glass tower downtown making big money and I am miserable. I cannot do this. So I called home and I said, you know, thanks mom and dad for all your love and support. And I just want to let you know I'm, I'm leaving the practice of law to become a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they disowned you. And how that all rolled out, um, it, it's funny how, how life, you have to keep your eyes open, right? When when I became a lawyer one, at, at this firm, one of the things that they tell you right at the beginning is, okay, you have to pick a charity that you're going to work with, right? That's like part of our corporate whatever. So I said, okay, well, I you know I love kids. I don't have kids, but I love kids. And uh, so I chose Big Brothers Big Sisters because I was raised with a lot, a lot of love. And I know that that's the reason I've gotten a lot of the places I've gotten. So I thought, oh, if I can, you know, put some love into a kid's life, that would be great. So I, I got on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters and they did a lot of fundraisers. And just through serendipity, just how things kind of happened, um, I started being the person to host those things. Mm. And you know, it would be in a bar and it would be like a kickoff to their big bowling marathon or whatever. And I think to myself, well, why don't, why don't I put a little outfit together? And I put a little outfit together and then I, you know, I make a couple of jokes and, and that audience would go crazy for those jokes. And then the next year rolled around and it was like, oh, is Candy going to host that again? And that started to feel just really, really good to me. So I thought, you know, well, if this feels good, why don't I try to like, do this? So when I left the law, I knew I couldn't, you know, just support myself instantly as, as an entertainer. So I took a job with the Nova Scotia government as the director of education, of Mi'kmaq education. So all day I would affect the educational life of Indigenous children in Nova Scotia. And at night and on the weekends, I could pursue my entertainment. And how I started, and this is, I believe very strongly in fake it till you make it. I just started telling people, I'm, I'm a comedian. I'm a comedian. Are you having an event? Because you could hire me. I had never told, you know, done an actual set in public yet. And then I got a call from the Nova Scotia um, Human Rights Commission. Uh, Mayan Francis was the executive director and they were having a big conference for women. There was going to be 200 women. And she said, could you do a 20-minute set? And I said, sure. <laughs> and she said, how much? And I said, well, the first one's free. Because I didn't know if I was going to suck at this. So I didn't want to like lay out a price and then go down there and suck. And uh, so I said, you know, the first one's free. So I wrote a 20-minute set. And I went down and did it. And I got a standing ovation. And people afterwards were saying, how do we, uh, how do we book you? And I said, oh, just go to thecandyshow.com. 
And then I literally ran home and called everybody I knew who knew anything about computers and said, somebody's got to build me a website and it's got to be called thecandyshow.com. And luckily it was available and I got my website up and I was kind of off to the races. And then I decided, you know what? I, I want to be in television. I want my own show. I had this dream of the candy show when I was 14. I know exactly what I want it to be. I even know what I want it to look like. I've known that since I was 14. And I just started putting it out there and putting it out there like, oh, you sweep up at uh, at such and such television station? Let me tell you about the candy show. Like, it didn't matter who they were. Anybody who I knew had anything to do with anything to do with entertainment, I would tell them about the candy show. Tell them about the candy show. Then, we, sorry, this is a big, long story, but then we had um, a, a fundraiser in Halifax every year called Tits and Glitz for Breast Cancer Awareness. I went the first year and I noticed there was a professional photographer. She was taking pictures of the 12 outfits she liked the best and she put a calendar together. And I thought, if I can put together an outfit that attracts her eye, I could get in that calendar. If I could get into that calendar, I might be able to use that as a springboard. Hmm. So I came up with the idea that a plus size can-can girl in purple and pink fluorescent sequins and boa would be fabulous. I found a woman to make, custom make me the outfit. Sure enough, the photographer saw it. I got in the calendar and then I got a call. CBC is doing a documentary on breast cancer. They want to use a few pictures from the calendar. One of the pictures I want to use is you. Can the producer come over to get you to sign a, a, a release? Sure. I quickly like pulled out in my office every picture of me with a celebrity, like everything I could find. And when she came in with that waiver, I just took that moment to like just be yucka yucka yucka, told as many stories as I could, you know, told her my unique thing of going from being a lawyer to a comedian. And then I waited and about two weeks went by and she called me and she said, I think you'd make great TV. And I thought, here we go. Oh, and she said, I want to do a piece for the six o'clock news. And I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, well, it's something, right? It's something. It ended up being an eight-minute piece, which is pretty long on 6 o'clock news. Yeah. And then a producer in Toronto saw it and said, we want to do a documentary. And then from there, I was kind of off to the races. Oh, so God. I'm always telling people, like, never, I, I get so frustrated. People say, well, it's too late for me. It's too... Listen, I, I went to law school at 27. I started practicing law at 30. I did my first comedy routine at 32. I got my television show at 40. I got my first rate national radio show at 47. And I got my first national book deal at 50. It is never too late. I cannot wait to see what's going to happen at 60. Oh, my God. I love that. You know, it's there's so many things that uh, it made me think of just there. And, and you know, you and I have worked together only on the one time with my Top 10 event. And when I run that event, I don't get the luxury of being able to get, you know, into the nitty-gritty with each person as much as I would like to. Because it's, you know, you know how it's like. You're producing an event, and it's just like, okay, you're good, fine. Move on to the next person, right? Yeah. And, and so to hear that is so interesting to me because, you know, one of the things that I get a lot of, you know, people coming up to me at the end of my speech is saying, they'll say things like, you know what, Stuart, I, I'm, I'm inspired and, and I know that I, I, I want to do something big with my life and I don't know exactly what it is, but I, I know it might be in this industry or in this world or in that country and I just don't know where to start. And I always come back and, and, and say the same thing. I say, start anywhere because anywhere actually is a place and anywhere will lead you everywhere. Exactly. And, and, and just start something. And, and you just laid it out as to how that works, which is one thing led you to this, and then the other thing led you to that. Now, but what would you say to people who are listening right now who think, oh, yeah, but that only happens for the special people, or that only happens for the lucky people. It wouldn't happen for me. And, or maybe that only, that's, that's the you know, quintessential entertainment story. But I want to become, uh, I don't know, a, a, a tech startup, or I want, to become, I want to start my own charity, or whatever it happens to be. I want to be a fashion designer. Those people will come up with a million reasons as to why your story is only unique to you and it won't be unique to them. You know, what do you say to people like that? Well, I, you know, for me, when I look at my story, I, I never started with me. I started with my mom and dad. And my father was an indigenous man uh, born to um, a woman who had a very bad alcohol pro problem. Uh, the husband left 
when my dad was three and they were put out in the street. She couldn't go back to the reserve because of the way the law was set up back then. Mm. She had to take her kids into the woods, into a tar paper lean-to, and she had a draw knife that she made herself that she used to make baskets and high chairs and snowshoes, and she would sell them to the white people in town. Mm. She was also what we would call now a midwife. They, they called the medicine women back then. Um, and she would make a little money helping women have their babies. And that's how she kept my dad and, and his siblings alive and together. My dad had his first drink with her when he was 10. He was a full-blown alcoholic by his teens. When he married my mom, the alcoholism was very bad. My mother lost her family over marrying him because they, you know, it was the 40s and the idea of their white daughter marrying this indigenous man was not something that they could handle. So they disowned her when she married him. And unbelievably, like, when you listen to that story, he went to World War II, you know, he had all the psychological problems that come from World War II, all the psychological problems of his childhood, the worst horrors of which I will never know because he and my mother never, ever wanted me to know that. Um, He should have been dead or in jail. And in his 30s, he found his way to sobriety. And when he died, he died 51 years sober. And when he got sober, he had no education, not even like two weeks in grade one, like zero education, but he was an incredibly gifted mechanic, like just natural ability. And in 1969, without the ability to read or write, my father opened the very first Harley Davidson dealership east of Montreal in a little place called Pointland in New Brunswick. And he ran that successfully for years. My brothers worked in the shop. Two of them were mechanics. The other one was the artist who did all the paint jobs on it. Um, and all it took was was the notion that I'm, I'm going to try. I, whether I do or not, I'm going to die trying. And that's where I think you have, like, that's how I define my success, right? Like, I want to be Oprah. That's who I've wanted to be forever. Uh, I may die never, ever getting there. But if I die trying, then I won. Like that's all I wanted to say on my on my tombstone is at least she tried. I got one kick. I get one shot at this life. I am not going to waste it making up all the reasons why I can't. Look, I'm I'm the wrong race. I'm the wrong gender. I'm the wrong size for all the things that I've chosen to do in my life. There are not a lot of 300 plus pound queer indigenous women killing it out there in the entertainment industry. <laughs> but it, all of that disappeared because I had this feeling of what I had to offer the world. And when I started to offer it, people picked it up. And not it's, it's not always, you know, I wanted to be the new host of Q so bad. I, I just, I tried so hard when I came up for that audition. The whole country heard me give it. Um, you know, the, the listeners responded so well to me. And in the end they said, yeah, you know, you were fabulous. The listener feedback was great, but we're looking for someone who's willing to change themselves to fit the show, not vice versa. So we're giving it to Shad. So there I was, it's like, okay, it's, people would say it's a failure. Well, yeah, maybe it's a failure, but I got the audition. I did a week auditioning it caused them to bring me back for three months of fill-in while they were getting ready to to bring tom power on in that time i made connection with all these incredible audience people and on the day that i got the call saying we're giving the show to shad and i had that moment of it failed i tried and i didn't get it and here's where i am my phone rings it's jonathan torrens who some people will know as J-Rock from the Trailer Park Boys. Uh, Candy, I'm so glad you didn't get Q. I said, well, thanks, buddy. Mm -hmm. He said, you don't understand. We wrote a whole character in season 10 of the Trailer Park Boys with you in mind. We even named the character Candy. And when we heard you got the audition, we thought, oh, no, if she gets the show, she won't be able to do Trailer Park Boys. So I went from feeling like I had failed to a week later, I'm on set with Tom Arnold on one side of me and Snoop Dogg on the other. And I'm shooting on Trailer Park Boys. So, like, your eyes always have to be open for what the dream is going to be. Like, you cannot get too tied in. And, and, and I'm sorry, this is a very long answer to your question, but I, I have a perfect example of, like, making sure that your eyes stay open. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a ballerina. And I mean, I wanted to be a rap ballerina so bad I could I could taste it. All my walls were covered with ballerina posters. 
I lived in a tiny little town where you could not take a ballet lesson. That just was not available. We didn't even have a McDonald's or a movie theater. Um, I was also five foot ten with size eleven feet. I was built like an athlete. I was not built, as, you know, like a ballerina. My shoulders were wider than most of the guys in my, in my high school. But I really wanted to be a dancer. That was my thing. So when I was about fourteen, a woman came to town and she was teaching ballet, jazz, and tap lessons. And I said, "Oh my goodness, I have to do this." My parents didn't have very much money at all, but they scraped together enough for, to pay for the lessons and to get me a little leotard in the Sears catalog. I went down to the lesson. It was mostly grown-ups and me. And there was this part where she was teaching us about our, to do this movement with our arms. And I was like this height then. I'm, I'm 5'10". And when I did the move, she turned around and she said, well, you're not supposed to look like a big, awkward dodo bird. Oh. And she's like in front of the whole crowd, right? So crushed, crushed. And I thought, oh, okay, that's the end of my ballet dream. Then my parents joined the Golden Age Club. They wanted to learn how to dance, ballroom, ballroom dance lessons. So there was a senior citizen group teaching ballroom dance lessons. And I said to my parents, because my parents had me really late in life, um, after my dad had got sober, he, after 10 years of sobriety, that he wanted one child that he could raise in sobriety, and that's when they had me. And I said, I'm coming with you to the dance lessons, but my friends can never know. So every Wednesday night, it'd be me and all the blue hairs, and I learned how to jive and foxtrot and rumba and samba, and I thought, okay, this this is my dream then. I'm just at least going to learn how to dance properly. So when I became a lawyer, I find myself at a fancy event. There's a judge sitting next to me. A song comes on. I say, oh, that's a nice jive. He said, you know how to jive? I said, sure. And off we went to jive. So then when I was at university, I said to my mom, oh, the ballet is coming to Fredericton. She sent me the money for a ticket. I saw the show. I, I was in love. It was my first live ballet. And I said, okay, here's the dream now. The dream is I'm going to earn enough money that I can go to the ballet whenever I want, that I can see it. That will be my dream of the ballet. And I, I totally lived that dream, and I absolutely loved it. Now, flash forward. I'm 51 years old. I'm over 300 pounds. I walk on a cane because I'm all crippled up with arthritis. I'm on a gig. I get a call from my manager. She says, you better sit down. I said, why? She said, the National Ballet of Canada just called. They want you to guest star in the Nutcracker this year as a case doll. <laughs> and bada boom, bing. I go onto the stage at the Force Center with my cane under the direction of Karen Kane and perform with the National Ballet of Canada. Now, do you think that woman that taught that lesson in my little town has ever been on that stage? No. <laughs> so gotta have your eyes open to what the, the dream may not be how you first dreamt it, but make sure you you recognize it when it comes. Oh because my God. I had my ballet dream. It wasn't the way I pictured it, but let me tell you, I lived a lifetime in the three minutes I spent on that stage. That is one of the best stories I can remember hearing. That is so fantastic. I love that. Like what a... What I didn't know where it was gonna go, and and uh, and I and to, to it was not the ending I was expecting, and um, that is such a great example of what it is that we're talking about. I I, I remember um, years ago I used to produce musicals in Toronto, and I had my own theater, and I wrote these musicals, and I would put the cast together. I did everything. I mean, I was, no one else was going to do it, so I had to. And I never, I'll never forget when finally I had a, 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 you know, a pretty large paper come out to do a review. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is it, you know, because we were this, like, little hidden show and everyone's going to love it. Um, and, and Or everyone does love it. Finally, it's going to get into one of the papers. So the, the theater reviewer comes, and it was just one of those shows that could not have gone more perfect. All the lighting cues were great. All the sound cues went off when they were supposed to. And our actors went out there, and they did the best show they could possibly do. Huge standing ovation. And I thought to myself this is fantastic so a week later the review comes out I go and I get the paper I don't even open it up I go and buy a coffee I go and sit in one of the parks here in Toronto I sit down it's a beautiful day and I open up the paper and there's a big picture of me uh, and I've told everybody I know to to get the paper and, and and read this review and sure enough the review is line after line about how bad this show is Oh no! Yeah, like, do not waste your money. This is something I wish I didn't even bother going to. 
And the reality was, is, is, is this type of show, which was not being done in Toronto, and it was very kind of avant-garde, very new and different, um, I think technically it probably threatened this uh, traditional theater critic and and. and he was having a psychological response to what had happened and for that reason felt uh, the need to pander it. But um, I remember sitting there thinking, oh no, like my, my career is over. Um, I, was, I was thinking that we were better than we actually are. I'm having all these negative thoughts. And after about 20 minutes, all of a sudden I start chuckling. I start thinking to myself, hold on. I just got my very first bad review. And I thought, I'm now actually more like the people I'm trying to become than I was without the bad review. I'm I'm like, I'm actually in the game now. <laughs> You're now in the world of Tennessee Williams because he's gotten some bad reviews too. That's right. That's right. And, I, and, and you know, in, in my own story, you know, fast forward, I mean, probably about 10 years later, I was uh, speaking at a big conference in, in Vegas and uh, Martin Short was one of the speakers on the lineup. And he and I, just based on the way that timing went, um, ended up going out for dinner with these two other individuals, the CEO and the CFO of the company. So the four of us went out and we had an evening, which is hilarious. It was um it was actually Valentine's Day, and we and we ended up getting quite drunk, to be honest with you, and um, and I and I told this story to Martin, and Martin's like, "Oh my God, Stuart, you kidding me?" He says, and he just goes on about, "I've got I got a friend named Steve. You may have heard of him. Last name Martin." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, I think I've heard of him." And he goes on about the, like the them changing uh, exchanging stories about all the bad reviews they've had, and it was just like a, a kind of a coming of age moment for me, where you realize that. Even though what's happening right there in that moment feels like it's the end of the world, it's just because you put yourself out there that it will lead you to that next moment. And then that moment leads you, of course, to the next moment. And before you know it, uh, if you reframe it enough to see that it's just one next step in a much bigger uh, journey that you're on when you do walk out on stage with a national ballet or when you do get up uh, and you have dinner with 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 um, martin short or for the person listening to this right now when you do that thing that is big for you that's when it all makes sense and it's never going to happen unless you just start something yeah you've got to try like, like I, like I, I die trying. That's my thing is I just want to die trying. And I also know that not everybody is always going to love me because mm-hmm. if you think that everyone's going to love you all the time, well, you're never going to feel successful. Cause that's just not, you know, uh, my dad again, couldn't definitely couldn't read or write, did not read any parenting books, but I had this wonderful moment with my dad when I was a teenager. I have two older sisters now, my older sisters, the women out there will maybe understand about this. My older sisters had the largest natural breasts I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> and so as a little girl, they were like once 10 years older than me, once 20 years older than me. So I was waiting for my boobs to arrive. And, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, no boobs. 14 and a half, no boobs. 15, no boobs. Finally, my mother said, sweetheart, you're not getting your sister's boobs. You're going to have boobs like mommy. And I, and, and I was really like bothered by it and my sisters were trying to convince me that you know i played so many sports and i had a house full of trophies from from all my athletics and they said you know you couldn't play any of those sports if you had these boobs that we have like they're horrible no 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 i couldn't hear that i just wanted so bad to have these boobs to the point that i actually asked my family doctor in northern new brunswick can you get implants here So one night, my father says, sit down here after supper. He says, I want to talk to you about this boob thing. Now, when you are a 15, 16-year-old girl, you do not want your 70-year-old father saying, I want to talk to you about the boob thing. (laughs) And I thought, okay, it's going to be that thing parents always say, you're beautiful to me, you're beautiful. Which, you know, when you're a teenager, that does not fly. It doesn't matter when your mom and dad say they think you're beautiful. What my father said to me was, listen, Somebody gets to know you, sweetheart, they're going to love you regardless. But the reality is, because at the time I was dating boys, the reality is the world of men is divided into two groups. There are boob men and there are leg men. Now, a a boob man is not going to look at you when you walk in a room. But sweetheart, you got more legs than a bucket of chicken. They're up to your neck. You're an athlete, so they're in great shape. They're always tan because you're outside in the summer. Why don't you spend less time worrying about what you don't have and just keep your eyes open for the people who are into what you do have. 
And I remember just like being in a haze. I walked into my bedroom. I shut the door. I stripped down to my underwear. I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, oh my God, he's right. My legs are fantastic. (laughs) And I went out and bought a bunch of short shorts and short skirts. And I never thought about my boobs again. And at the time, it was the solution I needed for that physical thing. But it turned into a great life lesson because all I'm doing all the time is I'm looking for people who are into what I've got to give. And if you're looking for something else, there is someone else there out there who can give that to you. I don't have to feel like a failure because I cannot get you where you need to go. I have a certain thing, a certain gift, a certain uh, energy I have to give out into the world. And my job is to just find the people who are into that thing. It's not to change who I am. It's not to try to be somebody else. It's not to live up to somebody else's standards or worry about that critic. If I tell a joke and there's a bunch of people who will laugh, then that means I am being successful as a comic. If, if I can get hired to come in and give people a speech and they love that speech and they feel somehow emotionally moved at the end of it and I can get a paycheck to come home and look after my family with that, that is success. I mean, maybe I'll be Oprah someday and that would be great, but if not, I'm quite happy with where things have gone because I, thankful to my dad, I am constantly looking for people who are into what I've got and not worrying about the people who aren't. Wow. That is so well said. You know, I remember one time with one of the top 10 events I had done before you and I had had the chance to meet. And it was just the weirdest week leading up to the event. Uh, my nephew had um, had complications in, in his birth, and so he was in sick kids' hospital in an incubator. And then uh, that stressed my dad out so much, he ended up having a stroke and lost the vision in one of his eyes. And I, I remember going out on stage and hosting the show that night, and never in my life I, had I ever given less of a shit about how well I did. Um, it was just one of those like, you know what, I'll go out there and I'll still be entertaining. But if you don't like what I do, go fuck yourself because it doesn't make a difference to me right now because of the way I'm feeling. And so I went out and I did what to me felt like what I always do. And I couldn't believe the flood of emails I received the next day from people who are really personal to me in my life saying, you know, I've been watching you on stage for years and I don't know what it was, but there was something special about you last night that really moved me and that really connected with me and I didn't consciously do anything different it was just what happened was is that my energy allowed me to be just me for once and I unfortunately needed to have these two tragic kind of situations happen um for me to get there which I'd like to get there without it ideally but when you are just you and when you will allow yourself to be you and like as you say just allow yourself to be all the great things that you do have as opposed to worrying about the things you don't uh, the best part of you will always show up and there will always be a quote-unquote audience for you, whether you're the person who wants to be on stage or whether you're someone who wants to sell model train sets. There's always going to be people who flock to you because you've stayed true to who it is that you are. Because there's only one thing that each of us can only ever be really, truly expert at, and that's being ourselves. Like yeah. I am only an expert in my own life. That's That's all there is to it. So I, I just can't waste any of my energy trying to be somebody else because I've only got maybe if, if life is good to me, 95 years mm-hmm. to really like to really live as candy, to really candy it up. <laughs> so uh, I don't have time to try to be Brenda or Susan or David. I got to be candy. <laughs> and no matter how hard you try, you'll just do a very poor job at it anyway, right? Exactly. And then that will be wasted time. Oh, so well so, said. So well said. Well, you know what? I think that's a perfect place for us to uh, to to close the show today because I uh, I can't imagine that we could inspire anybody any more than we already have with your story. <laughs> um, there were so many other things I wanted to get to, but uh, I want to make sure that I am respectful of your time and at the same time respectful of the time of those who are listening. But guys, if you're listening to this right now, I know... Uh, I know many of you, and I know the kinds of people that you are, and you tune into this show because you want to be inspired. And when I have these guests on, I never know where it's going to go. But uh, I think for those of you who follow this show, you'll agree with me when, I, when we say this has been one of the most inspirational shows we've ever had. Um, Candy, okay. yeah, you're just so great. I, I can't thank you enough for, for being on this show and and for really touching the people who are listening, and, and myself included. Um, for those who are listening... And, and they and they want to get into your world, a, a world that is 
dramatically changing. Your answer would have been so different to this maybe about three months ago. But what, uh, where, where, where should people look for you now if they want to kind of get into your world? You can find me on every platform as The Candy Show. So every social media platform, it's The Candy Show. I have a YouTube channel that is completely different from my professional life. Uh, I talk about beauty and books, and, and I do vlogs from my little apartment here in Toronto. So you get to see the no makeup, no glitter candy. Um, and in spring 2021, because the one thing not affected by COVID is the publishing world is going on as, as planned. So in spring 2021... My book, which is a memoir, will be out through HarperCollins Canada. Right now, the working title is Running Down a Dream. And it is uh, basically the story of my life and the story of what we talked about today, just running down a dream, you know. Uh, Cheryl Strayed, in her book Wild, had this beautiful thing at the very beginning where she first starts on that trail. She sold everything she owned. And an animal comes and she jumps in a bush and it happens to be a, a thorny bush and she comes out and she's covered in thorns and she's a mess and she's already burnt out and she's only been walking for half an hour. <laughs> and she has this feeling of maybe I should quit. And she looks behind her and she realizes I've sold everything. I have nowhere to go. And she, there was this line that has resonated with me where she said, I realized the only choice I had was to turn in the direction I was going and take a step. And that to me was, I don't need any other advice in my life. So the book is all about constantly, every time I fall down, getting up, turning the direction I'm going and taking a step. So look for that with HarperCollins Canada in spring 2021. Hopefully there'll be an in-person book release, but who knows? <laughs> well, you know what? That is a book I know many people listening to this are going to want to get. It sounds really inspiring. It sounds really great. So um, listen, once again, Candy, thank you so much for being on the show. I feel so lucky to be able to have uh, taken a deeper dive into your past and to the steps that you've had to take to get to where you are today. And I, I can speak on behalf of everyone listening to this right now that we can't wait to see what the next 10 years will look like. So uh, thanks again and sending you lots of love, big hugs, and uh, I guess happy hand washing to you. Yeah, same here. Stay home and stay safe. <laughs> okay, thanks, Candy. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Thank you for tuning in to The Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it. We'll prove it. We'll prove it.